it gives us very direct and comprehensive advice on how to reach the Buddhist goal of how to actually practice Vipassana meditation. And so the four foundations of mindfulness, as they are explained in this sutta, they are, first of all, the mindfulness of bodily or physical phenomena. And this is called Kaya Nupassana Satipatthana in Pali. The second foundation of mindfulness is the mindfulness of feeling. And in Pali it's, it's called Vedana Nupassana Satipatthana. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind together with its mental uh, factors or mental associates. And this is called in Pali Jittanupassana Satipatthana. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of dhammas or mind objects. And in Pali it's called Dhammasnupassana Satipatthana. Satipatthana is a compound, a compound word. Consists of sati and patana or upatana. Sati originally meant um, memory, but then in the Buddhist context, the meaning shifted a little bit, and sati came to mean the attentiveness directed to the present. In English, we normally translate it as mindfulness or attention or awareness or Yanaponikatera, the famous German monk who lived for many years in Sri Lanka, he called it bare attention. In Burmese, in the Burmese language, they have incorporated the Pali word sati, but when it's described with Burmese words, then it's um, described as non-forgetfulness. That means when we do not forget, then we remember, then we remember to be in the present. And the other part of the word, patana or upatana, this means establishment or foundation or domain or setting up. And so when they, these two words are put together, <coughs> sati, patana, then this can mean the domain of mindfulness or the establishment of mindfulness or the foundation of mindfulness or the way of setting up mindfulness. So before I go into explaining the four foundations of mindfulness, I want to say a few words about sati, mindfulness, as it plays a key role in the practice of vipassana meditation or mindfulness meditation. As I said before, in our ordinary lives, mindfulness is very rarely uh, developed or established well enough to use it for careful and sustained observation. Very often our mind flips from one object to the other, here and there. And then this is immediately followed by habitual uh, reactions or by judgmental thoughts. So, to understand mindfulness better and to make use of its great potential and power, we obviously have to develop it. We obviously need to cultivate it. So first of all, we should uh, clearly understand what mindfulness or uh, attention 
exactly means. It can be defined as the clear and single-minded awareness of what is happening in and around us from moment to moment. Or in other words, we can say that it is to be aware of what is happening in our bodies and minds as it really is in this present moment. It is called bare attention because it attends to the bare facts of the experience without reacting to it by actions of body, speech or mind. So, in ordinary life, very often when we are not mindful, as soon as something um, enters through our sense doors, then the mind is immediately reacting to it, judging it, thinking about it, dismissing it, rejecting it, liking it, or even reacting by uh, actions of speech or deed even. So therefore, when we want to make use of this silent power or silent influence of mindfulness, we have to strengthen it, we have to develop it so that it, we can sustain it for longer periods of time. And this needs a methodical or systematic training of this mental factor called mindfulness. Because mindfulness is very important when we practice Vipassana meditation. It becomes a key factor in penetrating into the true nature of all phenomena. Or it is the key opening the door to final liberation. One of the functions or powers of mindfulness lies in its power to bring some order in our disorderly mind. When we have a look at our minds, which are untrained, then we come to see that there are all these different kinds of thoughts, emotions, feelings, uh, rushing through our minds. And this is quite a chaos when we look a bit more closely. And then there are also sense impressions like sights and sounds which are constantly impinging on our mind. When we are not mindful, then these sights or these sounds, they can lead to faulty perceptions or we misjudge them because we have not been carefully aware of what it really was. And as I said, all these thoughts, emotions and feelings that are constantly arising and um, buzzing through our minds, it can become very confusing because there are so many, because they come one after the other, we have no means to control them or we have never learned to deal with them in a wholesome or beneficial way. So, our minds, they can com be compared with wild monkeys. Wild monkeys staying in the jungle, they jump from one branch to the other, from one tree to another, never staying long in one place. And so for meditators, beginning a retreat, or those who have never meditated before, this monkey mind becomes quite obvious after a few days of meditation. And actually, some of you also have mentioned in the interviews that the mind uh, 
is rather like a wild monkey. And so especially for beginners who have never practiced meditation, expecting that meditation will only make their minds calm, peaceful, and tranquil, then they can get quite frustrated or downhearted when they come to realize this monkey mind. And so then they may may even think that this method is not working for them. But actually, it's not that the thoughts have become more, that the mind has become wilder, but as these meditators finally sit down and start looking at their mind, they finally come to realize the true state of their minds. Of course, this can be quite distressing or even shocking to find that our mind has been like this all the time. But on the other hand, it also can arise a desire or a wish to finally do something about it. So then, it's at this point that people, that meditators come to realize that they actually need some methodical training to train their minds, to cultivate their wild minds. Because it's through the daily negligence of all these different kinds of thoughts and emotions that are buzzing through our minds, this daily negligence going on for many, many years, and as the Buddha has said, even for many lifetimes, it's this daily negligence that leads to this great confusion and chaos in our minds. And in the commentary to the Sutta Nipata, it is said, Negligence produces a lot of dirt, as in a house, so in the mind. Only a little dirt collects in a day or two, but if it goes on for many years, it will grow into a vast heap of rubbish. So the simple act of bringing mindfulness or awareness to all these different kinds of thoughts, emotions and feelings, this already reduces the chaos uh, quite a bit. And so our minds do not feel so messy anymore. Instead of ignoring these thoughts and emotions, we need to face these different thoughts and emotions and feelings. And we should not run away from them, but we should take up the challenge and finally look carefully and clearly at all these thoughts, emotions and feelings. And we should look at them, we should face them with mindfulness with non-judgmental mindfulness. So, when we can do that, this will already bring a little bit more order into our minds. It's quite simple to be mindful, but it's quite effective and powerful. Although the method of being mindful is quite simple, In the beginning of our practice, it's actually not so easy to be mindful all the time. So, what we need is patience and perseverance and continuously trying to be mindful, to be aware, so that gradually our power of mindfulness becomes stronger and so that we can sustain it for longer periods of time. Then, when mindfulness has become strong, 
sustained and powerful for quite some time, then we will be able to penetrate into the true nature of phenomena and clearly recognize them or realize them for what they actually are. And it is only on the base of this uh, realization or of these discoveries that a fundamental change can actually happen. In the commentary to the Satipatthana Sutta, the following is said, Mental taints defile beings. Mental clarity purifies them. That mental clarity comes to be by this way of mindfulness. Another power of mindfulness lies in its non-violent approach. From our experience in daily life and in meditation practice, we have come to realize that there are actually many hostile or conflict-causing forces in our mind. And our habitual reaction is repressing these hostile forces. We don't want to deal with them. We want them to be away as quickly as possible. We just want to get rid of them. But normally, this approach doesn't work very well. For a moment, we might push them aside, but it doesn't take long, and they come back again, maybe even stronger than before. So, if we use repression or aversion to get rid of these uh, internal enemies, we are bound to fail. This approach is not going to bring about a beneficial or final uh, solution. It's not a wholesome way of dealing with these internal enemies or hostile forces. So, the way of mindfulness is a non-violent approach of dealing with these enemies, be they internal or even external. So, if we apply mindfulness to all the upcoming enemies, and if we are persistent and perseverant, then the nonviolent power of mindfulness will gradually develop and strengthen. And so, it is in this way that we finally are able to overcome these enemies or hostile forces within. So, during the practice of Vipassana meditation, we must be mindful, we must be aware of all phenomena which come up in our mind or body, and we must be mindful without reacting to them, without judging them. We also shouldn't analyze the object, we shouldn't reflect about it, We shouldn't look for the causes for this object to arise, but we should just apply non-judgmental mindfulness, seeing seeing these uh, objects as they are. So, during the practice of Vipassana meditation, we just have a variety of objects, mental or physical objects, which arise and which need to be noted, which need to be aware of. It actually doesn't matter um, if they are objects arising in the body or if they are objects arising in the mind. We need to be mindful, we need to be aware of. So, it's only for the sake of a 
theoretical classification that we have these four foundations of mindfulness. For putting the teachings down and for uh, classify them into different groups. So these different objects in the mind and the body, they have been categorized into four groups or four foundations. But what is important that these objects are experienced, that they are uh, directly and personally experienced and thoroughly understood. The first foundation of mindfulness is the mindfulness of bodily or physical phenomena and in Pali this is called Kayanupasana Satipatthana. In the Satipatthana Sutta the Buddha explained altogether 14 exercises of how a meditator can observe or contemplate the body. And one of these exercises or one of these ways of observing the body, bodily phenomena, is to be aware of it in terms of the four primary elements. And these four primary elements are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element. When we speak of earth, water, fire, wind element, they are not real earth or real fire, real water or real wind, but these elements, they just stay for certain characteristics which are similar to those of earth, water, fire and wind. So for example, when we are observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, then we are observing the wind element because movement or um, vibration is a characteristic of the wind element. Or also in the walking meditation, we are mostly concerned with the wind element as we are uh, observing the movement of the foot. Or in the daily activities, trying to be mindful of all different actions and movements, there also we are concerned with the wind element, trying to see, uh, be aware of the movement as we are doing it. So, in all our different activities, like getting up, putting on our clothes, walking to the toilet, washing our face, brushing our teeth, combing our hair, or then drinking water, eating our meal. There we are mostly concerned with the movements of our body or parts of the body. And so most of the time that we are observing the wind element. So, in observing each movement very carefully, very closely, then we will be able to come and realize the specific characteristics of the wind element. And the characteristics, the specific characteristics of the wind element are movement, motion, vibration or support. And not only can the specific characteristics be realized, but also the so-called common characteristics or general characteristics can be realized. And these general characteristics are none other than impermanence, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, and impersonality or non-self-nature of phenomena. In Pali, these three 
general characteristics are called anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So when we are observing movements, we think we know what movement is. Stretching out the arm, we feel that movement, or lifting our foot. Of course, we are aware of that lifting movement. Or reaching for a glass of water. Yes, we think we know what this movement is. But just being aware of it in this way is actually a very superficial way of being aware of the movement. This can be compared with a fan. When a fan is turning at the highest speed, when it's turning very fast, then when we look at it, it seems like there is a disc turning or just moving somehow. And if we have never seen a fan before, then we just think that there is this disc turning. However, when we slow down the fan, when it starts, uh, when it turns more slowly, then we come to realize that it is not a solid disc, which was somehow moving, but that this fan is actually consisting out of three or four uh, different blades. And when we slow it down even more, then we can see the blades even more clearly. And when it's turning very, very slow, and when we look <coughs> at it uh, mindfully, then we can even see the text- texture of the blade, what it is made of, or even we can read the little uh, thing made in China, made in Australia. So we wouldn't have been aware of that when the fan was turning at high speed. And so, therefore, it's very beneficial and very helpful when we slow down our movements so that we can go beyond or below the superficial level of being aware of movement. By slowing the movement more and more, we will be able to discover other things to see the movement in its true nature and not only in the way we think it is. So, for example, in the walking meditation, when we observe the movement of the foot at the outset of the practice, we have a general idea of that movement and we think that it is the foot that is lifted, the foot is pushed forward, and the foot is dropped down. And so, together with the idea of movement, we also have the idea of the foot, the shape of the foot, which is moving. But as we gradually uh, get deeper into it, when we become more mindful, when we move more slowly, then meditators can come to realize that they only feel movement and that actually the form of the foot or the shape of the foot has disappeared. At that time, only movement is perceived. means there is movement and something else is aware of that movement. The mind which is aware of movement. This means the mind which is aware of the wind element, as movement is one of the characteristics of the wind element. Many years ago, there was a foreigner practicing meditation in the uh, main center in Yangon. And one day, when he went for interview with Jamie Sayadaw, 
aus Sayada Ujjanaka. He said, Sayada, I am not able to practice meditation anymore. Something's gone wrong and I think I'm going crazy. So therefore, I better go home. I leave from here. And then Jamil Sayada said, well, tell me, what do you think has gone wrong? And so then that meditator said, well, you know, in the walking meditation, when I observe the movements of my foot, so before, when I was observing it, there was this smooth and uh, gentle movement of the foot. But now when I'm practicing walking meditation, the movement um, is not smooth and gentle anymore, but it has become very jerky. So I think mm, I'm going crazy, so I better go home. And then Chami Esaira said, no, 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 you don't go home because um, you're not getting crazy, but you're actually recovering from craziness. Because this meditator, he has um, gone beyond the superficial notion of movement and has started to become aware of the true nature of movement. Movement is not just one smooth movement from here to there, but actually when we start to see it more clearly, more exactly, then we first of all come to realize it as this meditator has experienced it. It feels like a rather jerky movement. And later, that meditator, he also came to realize, realize this movement more clearly and then he could see it that this movement was actually consisting of many tiny broken movements one after the other following each other in very rapid succession. So what we usually think as a steady and smooth movement is actually just a sequence or a series of very tiny moments of movement happening disappearing, the next tiny moment of movement happening, disappearing, then the next tiny moment of movement arising, happening and disappearing. And so in this way, the impermanent nature of movement, the impermanent nature of the wind element is clearly realized. It doesn't last very long, actually. It's just a fraction of a second. And as the nature of movement uh, is manifested in this way, all other movements that we observe are actually happening in the same manner. So when we observe the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, for example, with deepening of concentration and with the sharpening of our mindfulness, meditators will be able to even perceive the rising movement as a series of broken movements. One little rising movement appearing and disappearing followed immediately by the next little rising movement which arises and disappears followed by the next, by the next, by the next and so on. And for the falling movement that's the same. Or even all our actions and movements in daily activities can be experienced in the same way. So then the reaching of our hand is not just this one movement starting from here to there, but actually it can be experienced as this series of tiny little broken movements one after the other. And 
because they are so tiny and because they are so fast, we mistake them for one smooth movement. Just as with the fan turning very fast, seeing it as a disc, but when slowing down, we come to realize the separate uh, blades. And similar experiences can be made while observing the other uh, elements. So, for example, observing the earth element, when we are mindful of um, hardness or softness, for example, these are the specific characteristics of the earth element, then we also can come to the realization that this hardness, maybe hardness experienced in the buttocks when we are sitting, so that this hardness is not actually one solid block of hardness, but with careful observation, with penetrating mindfulness, this hardness somehow starts to disintegrate, become porous, like a sponge. And with deepening concentration, then we are also able to see just momentary arisings of hardness, like little um, bubbles or little uh, stones of hardness arising, disappearing, the next moment of hardness arising and disappearing. Or the same is true with observing softness. The specific characteristics of the water element is fluidity and cohesion. And this fluidity can be experienced by a meditator, uh, for example, like this. Even though when it's not very hot, the meditator may all of a sudden experience like sweat running down the body. Or if a meditator is not especially sad, um, all of a sudden tears um, start running the cheeks. Or at least the meditator thinks it's tears. And because it seems to be quite strange to have sweat running down and it's not hot or having these tears flowing down, not feeling sad, then the meditator sort of is startled and curious to know if there is really sweat running down or tears flowing down. And then if he or she goes uh, and touches the cheeks, the meditator will find that the cheeks are actually completely dry. There is no tear, no water. But the water element, fluidity, can be experienced in this way. And as for the specific characteristic of cohesion, this can be experienced in the walking meditation as like something sticky under the sole of the foot. So when a meditator is doing walking meditation, um, there can arise the feeling as if the sole of the foot is somehow uh, sticky, sticking on the floor. It feels like either there is some sticky thing on the floor or it feels like there is a chewing gum sticking to the sole of the foot. And so whenever the meditator wants to lift the foot from the ground, feel sticky. And again, as it is quite an unusual experience, uh, the meditator is startled and uh, if he or she goes and checks the sole of the foot, seeing if there is chewing gum or if there is maybe some sticky thing on the ground, um, nothing can be found. No chewing gum, nothing sticky on the ground. And so then, in the interview, the teacher tells him or her that this is just a manifestation of the water element, 
of the characteristic of cohesion. And the fire element has the specific characteristics of heat and also cold. So whenever we feel hot or cold in our bodies, this means that the fire element is manifested. And so we can observe it, we can be aware of it. Because it's hot and cold, therefore the fire element is also referred to as the element of temperature. Then the second foundation of mindfulness is the mindfulness of feeling, Vedana Nupasana Satipatthana. And with feeling, we just refer to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So, every experience is accompanied by one of these three feelings. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We also can call it the effective quality of an experience, or we could call it the feeling tone. It's not like in our everyday language we use the word feeling for uh, something different. We say, I feel hot, I feel cold, I feel miserable, I feel happy, and so forth. But in the in the Buddhist sense, um, feeling Vedana refers just to this effective quality of the experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Being aware of our feeling is very important because in an unenlightened person, pleasant feelings they will immediately lead to liking, attachment, um, desire, desire for more, holding on, clinging to it. If it's pleasant, we want to last it for a long time. We don't want to lose it anymore. And unpleasant feelings, on the contrary, they immediately lead to aversion, um, repulsion, ill will, frustration. Because it's unpleasant, we don't want it. We want to get rid of it. We don't want to face it. And neutral feelings, they normally just give rise to indifference. Because it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, the mind is not especially interested in it. So, we become indifferent to it. Feeling, or Vedana, is one of the mental factors, one of the 52 mental factors. And because it is so important to be aware of feelings, feeling is one of the foundations of mindfulness. And feelings can arise dependent on bodily um, uh, objects or mental uh, objects. So, a bodily uh, process, some pain in the body can give rise to an unpleasant feeling or an unpleasant memory can give rise to an unpleasant mental feeling. But actually, feeling, Vedana, is a mental state, a mental process. But it can arise either dependent on the body or the mind. So, especially unpleasant feelings are quite a challenge for many meditators. Because it's unpleasant, we are not very pleased to uh, take them as an object of meditation. So, very often our reaction is one of aversion, hatred, uh, ill will, pushing it away. But actually, also unpleasant feelings are subject to 
impermanence. They are not everlasting. They are of the suffering, uh, of the nature of suffering, and they are impersonal. So, if we um, have unpleasant feelings, we also should try to be as mindful as we can, so that we can penetrate into the true nature of it and gain insight. And it's even possible to become fully enlightened by observing unpleasant sensations. To give you an example of how this can be achieved, I'd like to tell the story of Mahatissa. At the time of the Buddha, there were two brothers. The elder brother was called Mahatissa, and the younger brother was called Chulatissa. They were both merchants. The elder brother wasn't married. The younger brother was married. He had a wife. So, one day they had to go to a faraway town to do some business. And on the way back, they stopped in a smaller place to spend the night. And it just happened that the Buddha was giving a Dhamma talk to a quite a large audience. So when the two brothers heard of that, they also went to listen to the discourse given by the Buddha. And the elder brother, Mahatissa, was so taken away by the teaching of the Buddha and by the presence of the Buddha that he wanted to ordain as a monk. So then, the next morning, Mahatissa told his brother that he was going to ordain a monk and that he would give up all his inheritance. So he said that everything, all the wealth, the whole fortune, belonged to the younger brother. And he went to the Buddha and the Buddha ordained him a monk. Chuladisa, when he got back home, he told his wife what the elder brother had said and told her that now they owned all the wealth, that all the fortune was there. And the wife of Chuladisa was of a rather greedy nature and so she was very happy that they had become so rich. But then she started to worry that Mahatissa might come back and then again ask his share. And in order to make sure that the whole fortune was theirs, she hired a group of robbers and gave them 1,000 pieces of money and gave them the order to go and kill Mahatissa. Only then she could be sure that he wouldn't come back and ask for his share. So the robbers, they went to the monastery where Mahatissa was staying. And as Mahatissa saw this man approaching, he knew something wasn't quite right. And when they were near him, the robbers told him straightforward that they had come to kill him, that they had ordered to kill, um, that they had been ordered to kill Mahatissa by his sister-in-law. And so Mahatissa asked the robbers to wait one day because he said he wanted to practice meditation and become enlightened before he had to die. But the robbers thought that this was only a bad excuse for him to run away. But Mahatissa pleaded with the robbers, asking him for one day to practice. But the robbers didn't trust him. And so finally, to show them how sincere he was, Mahatissa took a big stone and smashed it on his leg so that it broke. Then the robbers realized that he wouldn't run away, that he couldn't uh, run away. 
and so they allowed him to meditate for one day and they said that they would come back the following day so then Mahatisha right there where he was sitting down and he started to meditate and of course his broken leg caused him a lot of pain unpleasant sensations but Mahatissa tried to be mindful of this pain and as time went on his mind gradually could focus on this painful sensation his mindfulness became stronger and his concentration deepened and so he continued to meditate for the whole night and finally he could penetrate into the specific characteristics of the pain and also into the general characteristics of the pain he clearly realized anicca, dukkha and anatta and when the morning star appeared in the sky it is said that he had become one of the arahants now the third foundation of mindfulness is the mindfulness of the mind and its accompanying mental states this is called citta nupasana satipatthana the mind or consciousness citta in Pali in its strict Buddhist sense has the ability to be aware of an object it's cognizing the object or citta the mind is knowing the object the mind citta is only aware is only cognizing of what is happening it's other mental factors which recognize what it is which feeling for example Vedana then it becomes pleasant unpleasant or neutral but Chitta the mind in itself the consciousness in itself uh, only knows is only cognizing the object so it's completely devoid of any coloring it's these other mental states which arise together with the citta because citta can never arise alone so it's these other mental states which accompany citta which then color the mind in a certain way so when the mind is accompanied by let's say a desire then um, the mind citta is colored by desire so it becomes a desire, desirous mind or when it's accompanied by anger so by the mental state of anger then the citta which is pure um, it becomes colored by this anger and so we say it's an angry mind or if citta is colored accompanied by restlessness then it becomes a restless mind so um, being aware of citta means that we know the quality of the mind if it's accompanied by greed or hatred or restlessness or peacefulness whatever and the fourth foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of dhammas or mind objects and in the Satipatthana Sutta there is a list of what belongs to this fourth foundation of mindfulness the five hindrances are included the five aggregates are included the six sense bases are included these are 
internal sense bases and external sense bases, which means the eye and visible forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and tangible objects, and the mind and mind objects. Or the seven factors of enlightenment are included too, and the four noble truths. So, as I said at the beginning, when you are actually engaging in Vipassana meditation, there is no need to know uh, to which foundation of mindfulness a certain object belongs. All we need to do is to be aware of that object as it is. If we start to analyze or wanting to find out does this belong to Kaya Nupasana or is this Chitta Nupasana or is this Dhamma Nupasana then we're just creating a lot of thoughts and we become intellectual and the Buddha's teaching cannot be fully realized by mere intellectual uh, reasoning or theoretical by a theoretical approach so what is needed is the direct and personal experience of these different phenomena arising in the body or mind. So, for example, when we hear a sound, then we should just be aware of that hearing, not even analyzing the sound, what it is from or where it comes from, but the fact that we are hearing is enough that we should be aware of the hearing. Or when we eat and when we taste something, then we should just be aware of the taste, the tasting consciousness. Not more than that. Or especially also in the beginning of a a retreat, Many meditators feel a bit sleepy. The mind is still overcome with inertia. It's dull and drowsy. Some of you uh, are experiencing this state quite a lot. It's one of the hindrances. And so, whenever the mind is overcome by inertia, by sleepiness or dull and drowsy, all we need to do is to bring our mindfulness to that sleepy uh, mental state, bring it to the drowsiness, and just observe it, note it, drowsy, 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 sleepy, sleepy, sleepy. And if we arouse enough mental energy in observing and noting it, then it will be possible to overcome the sleepiness. Because sleepiness too is impermanent doesn't last forever. So, with this classification of the four foundations of mindfulness, every possible experience is covered. There is nothing that lies outside of these four foundations of mindfulness. But once more, it's not so important to know to which foundation a certain experience belongs. It's much more important that we pay as close attention to it as we can, that we feel it, that we see it, that we realize the object without judging, without applying violence, without wanting it to go away. Especially with the unpleasant um, experiences, Um, meditators use mindfulness or use labeling like a stick, wanting it to go away, uh, make away. But this kind of approach is based on aversion. We actually don't want to deal with this state, but we just want to knock it out. Uh, So that's gone. But as I said before, an aversive, a violent approach 
is never uh, helpful, is never really uh, understanding what is happening. We are just turning our face away. In the conclusion of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha had said, because if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected by him. Either final knowledge here and now, this means full enlightenment, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return, which refers to the third stage of enlightenment. And after that, the Buddha went on to say, let alone seven years, because if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, and then five years, four years, three years, and lastly, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of the two fruits could be expected by him, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is any trace of clinging left, non-return. So, if we are able to practice in this way, observing all phenomena as they are arising in our body and mind, when we are able to observe them um, with a non-judgmental and non-violent manner, then we can pave the ground for insight to arise. And then we can directly see as it is, and then our mindfulness is not tainted or distorted by misperceptions or by preconceived views. So this is the power of mindfulness. It can cut through the veil of appearances and see through them, or it can perceive reality as it really is. So then a meditator will be able to realize that the three general characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta are not only an abstract teaching of the Buddha, but that they are actually a fact that applies to all um, phenomena arising in our body and mind. And so you too you, you will be able to come to this realization and understand the, the true nature of all phenomena. So therefore, may all of you, by gaining insight through direct and experiential uh, knowledge, be able to see the true nature of things and become fully enlightened. <laughs>